I look around and I see a lot of faces in the auditorium up here. There's a lot of people. If you're sitting down in the fellowship hall, uh, there are a lot of people up here. So I really do appreciate the uh, sacrifice that you are making. Many from the congregation just on a uh, quarter, uh, monthly basis, uh, making their way downstairs to worship. I so appreciate it. It does create necessary room up here, and I am thankful for your uh, participation. Some of you uh, sitting down there faithfully uh, on off weeks for you, so I, I really do appreciate that. Um, I want to begin this morning our time uh, studying God, the Bible, studying God's Word, with something that I have not done for a long time. I'm going to tell you a joke. It's unusual. Uh, it's been a long time since I started with a joke. Here it is. It's not that long, though, and it's not that funny either. So there was a man, he was having terrible nightmares, terrible nightmares. They were uh, waking him up all the time. So he went to the, his doctor, his doctor referred him to a psychiatrist, and he walked into the psychiatrist's office, he sat down in the office, and, and the psychiatrist said, well, what's, what's wrong here? And the, the man said, doctor, you've got to help me, you've got to help me, I'm having terrible nightmares. And the psychiatrist said, well, tell me about it. And he said, well, uh, sometimes at night I, I have a dream that I'm a teepee. And then sometimes I dream that I'm a wigwam. And then sometimes I dream that I'm a teepee and then a wigwam and then a teepee and a wigwam and a teepee and a wigwam and a teepee and a wigwam. And the psychiatrist said, stop, stop, you're too tense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, after I apologize, I'll explain why I said that. I like that joke. It's a wonderful pun, isn't it? It's very good here. But this morning, it, at telling you, it gives me an opportunity to talk to you about diagnoses, about being diagnosed. And when you go see the doctor and there's something wrong with you, and you know there's something wrong with you, you want to know what it is. You want your doctor to be able to figure it out. And you want your doctor, when it comes time to diagnose you, you want him to be clear, you want her to be specific, you want them to tell you the truth. No one has ever said, walked out of a doctor's office, complaining that the doctor was mean for telling them they had a disease or for, for correctly diagnosing what's wrong with them. You want your doctor to have this sense of clarity. You want your mechanic to have that same sense of clarity, don't you? And your, your plumber. A few months ago, we had some flooring installed in the parsonage, and uh, Jason and Ed Hare and Stephen Busby came to do the work. And one day I was up at church, and I, I called home, talked to Kathy. I said, well, how's it going? She said, I don't know how it's going, but I can see all the way through our floor into the basement. And Bruce is here. It's bad. It's bad when the flooring contractor has to call the general contractor to look at the house, and there's a hole in your floor. It's bad. It got worse. Jason came and said to us, you know, just to be on the safe side, we're going to have our civil engineer come over and check out this house. <laughs> There's a post in the basement. It's an old post in the basement. It's a log post. It's a bug-eaten post. And it holds up most of our house. Um, so it's not an emergency, but it'll need to be shored up a little bit. It's the type of information that you want. Right? You don't want to be foolish and reject that type of information about your house. You need to know the full extent of the problem. In fact, one of the things that I want you to learn from the book of Hosea as we are going through it these days is unless you understand the full extent of the problem, you will never truly appreciate the solution. 
The Bible is full of this same sort of clarity when it talks to us about the problems. In fact, one of the major purposes of the Old Testament is to show us our true condition before God. We're going to go to the book of Hosea in a few minutes, but before that, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, if you would, in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3 is where I want to direct your attention for just a moment. Um, I, I, I learned something a couple weeks ago at the conference that I was at. John Piper pointed this verse out, and I saw how it would apply and help us understand the book of Hosea. So I want to show you something that I learned recently from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, before we go back to the book of Hosea. So Romans chapter 3. I hope that you are there um, now. So Romans chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 19. Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now Paul here is writing about the law of Moses, the law given through Moses to the Israelites. It's the covenant that God established with his people. It's functioned as their national constitution. It's the law for the Israelites and they were under that law. In one sense, it's, it's alien. It's an alien law to us. It's not our own Law. We're not under that same law the, the way they were. Uh, I remember we used to go to Canada quite a bit. We didn't live, we grew up not too far from the border. We used to go to Canada, and one day back in the 80s, we were driving through Canada, and it started raining. And my father said to the car, no one in the car would have known except him, he said, Do you have to turn your headlights on in Canada when you turn your wipers on? Those laws were just being, starting to be passed in the United States, and here we were in a foreign country. Is this a law here? Oh, we pull up to a red light in Canada. Can you turn right on red in Canada? I'm not sure. Alien law. Um, uh, we're not under it here in the United States the way that Canadians are in Canada. But the law of Moses that, that Paul is writing about here has broader application than those who are just under it that way. Look what the law does. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The law in the Hebrew Scriptures, it tells us, it shows us it's more than just for those Israelites. In fact, it shows us, it tells us that all of us are accountable to God. The whole world Every single one of us. And we're just not accountable to God. We are guilty before God. Every mouth may be silenced before God. Because we're guilty. Verse 20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law of God is like a mirror. It reflects to us it reflects to the whole world the truth about ourselves. It shows us that we are a mess. I imagine scenes like this happen in counselors' offices a lot. Can you picture it? A husband and wife, a fighting husband and wife, walk into the counselor's office and they sit down and they start talking. Our family's here for help. And, and, and he says, and do you know what the problem is? It's her. And he has a little list. He's got a list of all the things that she's done. And she says, oh yeah? <laughs> Let me tell you about him. What does a wise counselor do at that moment? Well, he's got a Bible in his hand. He could turn to, 
turn to a passage maybe like James 4 that says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Why are you arguing with each other? Isn't it because of the desires within you that are waging war? You want things, but you can't get them, so you fight and you argue. And maybe that wise counselor in a few minutes takes the Bible and shows them both uh, what's really going on in their marriage. And there comes a point in time where the accusations become silent. You move from, well, let me tell you about him, to, and let me tell you about her, to, oh, you mean me? Oh. Let the whole world be silent before God as we stand under his law. It's in part what the Old Testament is supposed to do, and it's in part what the Old Testament prophecy by Hosea does. Hosea is not strictly the law itself, but it's the prophet trying to apply the law to the Israelites. Now take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of Hosea. We're going to continue this morning our study that we started several weeks ago of the book of Hosea, and we're going to land today in chapter 4. Oh, and we find here in this passage Hosea turning, and he's going to start to talk about us, all the world. Let's review where we've been. Um, Hosea is one of those minor prophets in the Bible. It's one of, if we were uh, a Jew studying the Bible, we would call it the Twelve. The, the Twelve books at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, Hosea is the first one, uh, these Twelve Minor Prophets. And, and in a, a, a dramatic way, unlike any of the other prophets, really to an extent unlike any of the other prophets, Hosea's life, his personal life, meshes and mixes in with his message. Because even at the beginning, God comes to the prophet and he says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a woman, a woman who is not going to be faithful to you. She is going to break your marriage covenant. She's going to break your, her vows repeatedly. We spent the last, time, uh, last few times that we've been with Hosea talking about his family. We talked first about his marriage. Then we talked about his children, his three children. Then we talked, last time we were in Hosea, we talked about the reconciliation that eventually came. Hosea brought Gomer home. And and Hosea's relationship with Gomer is meant to picture uh, the relationship that God has with his people, Israel. Uh, Sin, our rebellion against God, is not just a matter of rule breaking. It's not just a matter of breaking God's rules. It's also a violation of love. It's a breach of relationship. One author said that Hosea 2 reminds us that sin doesn't just break God's laws. Sin breaks God's heart. That's why this image of this marriage is, is so important here. As we come to chapter 4, what's going to happen is that Hosea's family recedes into the background a little bit. They don't disappear entirely. I'll show you why in just a minute. But but we have here from Hosea 4 until the end, Hosea's sermons. Not really sermons, uh, snippets of sermons, excerpts from sermons. Um, Things that he said during his 50 years of ministry. I wish that these sermons were a little bit easier to categorize and organize. They're not. But one thing they do have is is they all point in this direction. They tell us about our true condition before God. Unless you know the full extent of the problem, you will never truly appreciate the solution. And and here it is. 
We're going to sit this morning under the authority of Hosea 4, 1 through 3. It's a smaller portion than we'll tackle in weeks to come. This is the beginning of it, though. And like Hosea, he has three children. Here are three great sins that he mentions, three great sins with disastrous consequences. In fact, the, the, uh, you can outline this passage quite easily. Um, where have we failed? And then what does that mean? Those two things uh, come in these three verses. Well, uh, let's look at the text here. Let's, let's read Hosea 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. Because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. So question number one here from this text, where have we failed? Let's think about first. Notice, so before we get into specifics, there's something very important about verse one I want to point out. It says, hear the word of the Lord. That is a, a clue that we have a new topic here. He's, he's uh, this introduction. And the text says, the Lord has a charge. Now that word charge is very important in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. It's the Hebrew word, reeb. Um, you could spell it R-I-B, like rib, except it's pronounced reeve. And the Hebrew word reeve means covenant lawsuit. God has a suit, a lawsuit to bring against his people. Now, you're familiar with this. Uh, uh, perhaps you've been in a contract with somebody before. You, you enter into a contract, you sign the contract, and you fulfill your part of the agreement, but they don't fulfill their part of the agreement. Or... They do your, their part and you don't do yours. Sometimes in those situations, what happens? You go to court to solve the problem. You sue or you get sued. God has a, 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 a covenant with his people. Israel has failed and God is now taking them to court. Now, this is very important in the, the, uh, the Old Testament prophets. In fact, it, it happens several times God has Reeves, God has charges. Um, some of the places in the Old Testament, it's developed a little bit more. I wrote down a, on that note sheet in your, your bulletin a few more places where there is a covenant lawsuit. Look at Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, speaking to the prophet, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging, lodging a charge against Israel. There's a case, there's a charge, there's that word charge, reeve, again. And in this case, the prophet speaking on behalf of God is the prosecuting attorney. The Israelites are the defendants. And who's in the jury? Who's the jury in this case? The mountains and the earth. God is calling creation to hear a case that he has against his people. The book of Isaiah does the same thing. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's man, man, manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. 
God's calling again creation itself. Listen, I have a charge. I have a case to bring. Now, just as an aside, this is a a, a complete tangent for just a moment. Verse 2 should be very helpful to you. It should encourage you some. We we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. My dad made passing reference to it. Some of you have children who have wandered from the way, and it causes you great concern, great anxiousness. The book of Proverbs speaks often about a mother and father who are heartbroken because they have foolish children. And, and one of the things that, that can happen in this, uh, you see your children making foolish choices. One of the things that can happen is you get on the cycle of what did I do wrong? Where did I go? What did I do? This constant agonizing over everything that you did wrong. I'm sure you're, you're not a perfect parent. Uh, I'm not a perfect parent. But there is one in verse 2 here who is a perfect parent, God himself, and he still has prodigal children. This should soothe that anxious cycle that you're on. Even if you were a perfect parent, remember, you don't have that level of control in your children's lives. There's been one perfect parent, his name is God, and even he has rebellious children. Well, that was a little bit of a tangent. Let's, one more example of the covenant lawsuit here. Psalm 50, verse 4. God summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. God's going to call the earth, call the heavens to the trial, and they're going to testify that God is right in this situation. Now... I point out this reeve for a couple of different reasons. First of all, we should understand that the book of Hosea is built on a relationship. The relationship that God has with his people. He's their covenant Lord. They are his people. He has told them how to live and they have failed. In the book of Hosea, in in the, the Old Testament in general, when God comes in to judge, he is not doing it because he's a bully. He's not doing it because he's temperamental or capricious. This is God's people. He has a covenant with them and they have failed. What they knew were clearly God's commands. God isn't being mean. He is fulfilling the promises that he has already made to them and that they know about. Now second, by showing you this, I just I, uh, there's a little bit of me here that's uh, geeking out a little bit on the Hebrew text. Okay, There's just a little bit. Uh, this is pretty cool in the Old Testament. Look at this. This this uh, genre here. This is, what an anthology we have in this book. Uh, this book that we have, it's a treasure. We have stories and letters and poems and proverbs and sermons in, in this book here. And, and even within those books, there's these literary forms, these, these little clues. One of the challenges is that we're not very familiar with these things. We're not very familiar with these, these uh, well, genres or these little literary techniques If you were an Israelite, though, and you heard Hosea stand up and say, hear the word of the Lord, the Lord has a charge against you, you would immediately know God is suing us. God's suing us. Why is God suing us? That's a great question. Let me tell you why. So let's talk about this here. Three sins, verse 1. Very simply stated, there is no faithfulness. There is no love. There is no acknowledgement of God in the land. No faithfulness, no love, 
No acknowledgement of God in the land. Here's what characterizes the people. And maybe Hosea is speaking about these United States too, huh? Uh, there's uh, these words. Well, let's think about them for just a minute. The, the, the first two of them kind of go together, uh, faithfulness and love. Uh, actually, th- these are uh, two of the most important descriptive words in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, Moses is, has been speaking with God on the mountain, and he says to God, show me your glory. It's one of the most important passages, one of the most important descriptions of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. And this is what, he, what Moses hears. Look at Exodus 34, verse 6. And God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. There's those words in there. Did you see them? They're they're true of God. This is what God is like. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. Same words as in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. There's no faithfulness, no love. God abounds in love and faithfulness. In Israel, there's no faithfulness, no love. Um, Faithfulness is is basically the word for truth. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And love is the great Hebrew word chesed here. Steadfast love, loyal love, covenant love. Now, we're dealing with relationships. So let me just give you an image here that might help uh, unpack what he's talking about here. Um, Together, these two words, faithfulness and love, constitute light and warmth. Those two things. Light and warmth. Some of you get up very early in the morning to go to work. Very early. And for the last four months, you have been getting up and leaving your house, and it's been dark. Dark and cold. Uh, I walk Stella around the, uh, the neighborhood in the morning, and it's dark and it's cold. And my dog is a coward. Dog is a coward. She's ready to run away from anything. Anything and everything she sees, she will run. And when your dog does something strange, doesn't that make you nervous, right? I saw a cartoon years ago of uh, two dogs that were sitting and talking. They were sitting in front of a closet, and one dog whispered to the other, do you want to see her go crazy? Just start barking every few minutes at the closet door and see what she does, (laughs) right? You're wondering, what does my dog know that I don't? What does she smell that I don't? Well, the season is changing. It's, it's wonderful. Sun's starting to rise earlier, and my dog is not nearly as scared as we walk around town because there is light and there is warmth. <laughs> Faithfulness and love are the light and warmth that are supposed to mark every happy relationship. Faithfulness means truth, but it's, it's not truth that is known, but truth as it is lived. Uh, it is it's honesty, trustworthiness, fidelity to your word, uh, integrity, reliability. Uh, one person says that the word faithfulness here encompasses truth-telling and truth-doing. Those two things together. It's a relationship in which you have nothing to hide. It reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. There's light 
in your relationship. Do you, do you have a friendship that's been ruined by dishonesty? Every person in this room knows what it's like to be lied to and how destructive that is. There is no faithfulness. Could this description apply to us today? What's election season? Aren't we just reveling in how our politicians are telling the truth and doing the truth before us? It's just so marvelous, right? I, there's, there's many fine followers of Jesus Christ in the room, and, and you're in pursuit of this. This is the type of life that you want to have. You want to have a truth-telling, truth-doing uh, truth life. But that's not really the flavor of our world, is it? It was last year. Wasn't it last year that the website Ashley Madison was hacked and all the confidential information was put online? You know, Ashley Madison was a place online where you could go and, and find resources to have an affair and um, they, they would help you uh, carry that out. It was all supposed to be very confidential. And then th- it was hacked, and the list of names came out, and everybody knew who was on Ashley Madison's been to the website to try to find resources to have an affair, to violate their marriage vows. And the list of names was long and long and shameful. There's this dishonesty. It, it shows up in surprising, seemingly small ways all over the place. Do you spend more time trying, uh, uh, pursuing what you say you believe, doing truth-telling and truth-doing, or do you spend more time trying to cover up for the fact that you don't do what you say? The standard of faithfulness here in the text is not perfection. That's not what he's talking about. It's honesty. It's just honesty. And it it was in short supply. It's evident in verse 2. There is only cursing. People are taking oaths and not fulfilling them. And then there's lying. There's all of this. There's no no faithfulness. Now the word love here, no faithfulness, no love. The word love, the, the, the flavor that it has in this passage is that it's talking about compassion or kindness. If faithfulness is like light, we're going to turn the lights on in this relationship, uh, love is like warmth. There's going to be heat. It's going to be uh, uh, the, the, the warmth of a fire on a cold night in this relationship. Um, It's going beyond the basic requirements of your covenant. It's freely and generously giving kindness. Maybe here even it's related to how you care for for needy people around you. Doing more than what you have to, to uh, shower kindness and goodness uh, on the the people around you. In Ruth chapter 3, Boaz praises Ruth. Ruth, that wonderful story about the woman and her fidelity to her mother-in-law, And Boaz says to Ruth, you have shown great kindness to your mother-in-law. You have shown chesed. You have shown love to her. In Genesis chapter 19, God rescues Lot from Sodom. And Lot, he does not deserve, he does not deserve to be rescued from Sodom. But God says, or Lot says, God has shown me kindness. He has shown me chesed. He's shown me love. Notice here in this passage, God is not just concerned with religious offenses. He's not just concerned with um, uh, uh, their worship. That's very important, though. He's concerned with how they are treating one another. This is where he starts. 
There's no honesty. There's no kindness. No compassion. Do you know what uh, poisons this sort of compassion that, that God is calling for? Uh, what, what, what poisons it? What poisons the love that God is speaking about here is the expectation that you're going to be rewarded in return for it. I'll do something nice for you. You do something nice for me. I'll hold up this end of the bargain. You hold up this end of the, of the bargain. If your marriage is working like that, that's poisonous. What you don't actually have is love is you just have gentle negotiation. You have a, maybe a gentle, a gentle uh, a business relationship. I'll do this nice thing for you. You do something nice for me. And that's how it's all going to work and we'll all be happy. That's poisonous. It's poisonous to the type of love that God is speaking here. Now, faithfulness and love, they're very important. They're central to God. They're missing in Israel. Maybe they're missing because of this third sin that's mentioned here. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Now, this word knowledge, is, it's, uh, objectively it means knowing true things about God. I want to know true things about him. That's uh, in actually chapter 4, verse 6. It says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. They don't know God. But it means more than just our objective knowledge about God. It actually means subjectively that I respond to God in the appropriate way. That I revere him as I ought. That I am in awe of him. Uh, of, of he, he is worthy of my awe and my reverence. That's what it means to acknowledge the Lord. Now, we're going to go back to Romans chapter 8 for a minute. I think I wrote the verses down on that blue sheet, but I want to show you something in Romans chapter 8 uh, where Paul writes about our response to God and he is, he is not just concerned that we have not acknowledging God, he's got more concerns than that. Look at Romans 8 verse 6. I wrote it down or you can look in your text, but listen to what it says. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now remember here, unless you understand the full extent of the problem, you cannot truly appreciate the solution. And here's the problem. Not just that you have broken God's rules and God's heart. The problem is that you hate God. Naturally, you, this is how we are. We hate God. Does that seem odd to you? Um, maybe you don't feel it. You know what hate is? You know how hate feels. Green beans come to mind. Right? You, know, you know what it is like to hate something. Maybe you don't wake up, this, this seems strange, hostile to God, hate God. Maybe this seems strange because you don't wake up every morning angry at God like this. <laughs> it's one of the, commentary, uh, one of the comments that, that uh, some scholars have made against the, the new atheists. Are you familiar with this? The, the people who are make, be, being famous by declaring and arguing for their atheism. Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and... Um, Oh, there's a British scientist whose name escapes me now. It'll come to me in a few minutes. It doesn't matter. These people are being famous uh, for their, their, their atheism. And one commentator said of them, that these men, that, that they are 
convinced that God does not exist, number one, and number two, they hate him. Two things go together. God doesn't exist, and I hate him. The, the problem here, this, this hatred, you don't feel it. You don't feel this. The problem is that you're, you're not responding to him as you ought to. Compared to what you should do in response, your natural response is hostility, hatred. Yesterday, I performed a wedding. I did a wedding yesterday. It was at an arboretum. It was wonderful. Uh, it was outside. There was things blooming. And uh, imagine, this did not happen yesterday, but imagine this. Uh, you're at a, a wedding at a beautiful place like this, and uh, the reception is going on, and you're looking. The bride is wondering, where's my groom? And you find him. He's over in a corner somewhere. He found a rose bush, and he's smelling the roses. And you say to him, uh, hey, man, your bride, she's looking for you. And he says, but these roses are so beautiful. I just want to smell them all day and look at them. They're beautiful. And you say, hey, man, she bought this dress. costs a lot of money. She got up at 4 o'clock this morning to go and get her hair and makeup done. She's got 587 bobby pins in her hair. <laughs> so she looks absolutely perfect, and she did it for you. What are you doing looking at these roses? Right? Something is wrong with a groom who doesn't want to spend the day with his bride. There is a reverence deficit in Israel. No one is standing before God in awe as he is. There are millions of people around the world who will today not have one thought about God and his existence and his supremacy and his glory. Improper acknowledgement of the supremacy of God. There is no acknowledgement of God's greatness. These are three sins that are listed in verse 1. And verse 2 uh, goes on and describes them a little bit. It expands. Look at, and I want, alarm bells should go off in your mind as you read verse 2. This should sound a little familiar. I'll tell you how it should sound familiar in a minute. There's only cursing, there's lying, there's murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. That should remind you of the Ten Commandments. Does it sound like that a little bit? We've got the list, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, cursing. Uh, 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 he, he, is, he is thinking here in this passage, Hosea has been thinking about the Ten Commandments and, and uh, 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 the people are, have fallen short of these commands well we're having a bit of an emergency this morning we have medical professionals on the stand somebody well we'll take Donald out That's fine. Nope. Sorry.
Well, I'm going to pray. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning on behalf of our brother Donald. We are thankful to you for him. And we're thankful to you for... We have so many people in our congregation who are skilled in responding to medical emergencies. And we entrust him into your care. And we entrust these uh, men and women who are caring for our brother. And we ask that you would uh, show mercy this morning. We do thank you for um, the fact that we can gather together and be with one another and care for one another. Thank you for, even as we're talking about, there's no examples of faithfulness and love, that there are people in our congregation who have imbibed these, these virtues and are displaying them this morning. Thank you that you are a God of mercy. We ask for your kindness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think we're going to continue while they care for Don. All right? So, verse 2. There is this violation of the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting here, at the end of verse 2, it talks about bloodshed and bloodshed. Do you remember I, I said that Hosea's family kind of recedes into the background? Well, uh, they're not completely gone Remember child number one, the first son that Hosea and his wife had was named Jezreel, and Jezreel got his name from the fact that in the, uh, in the um, valley of Jezreel, there was terrible violence and terrible murder. In fact, back in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, uh, nope, verse uh, 4, it says, the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. That's the same word, bloodshed, bloodshed, bloodshed. This nation is just marked by this, this terrible, terrible violence. Hmm. And when we come to verse 3 in the text, Hosea answers the second question for us. What does this mean? Where have we failed? No faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of the Lord. What does it mean? Verse 3, it tells us what this means is that creation is broken. Creation is broken. Look at verse 3. It says, Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. Now probably I think what's happening here is Hosea is speaking, there's a drought going on. The land is drying up. Now droughts were part of the covenant. Remember we had established this covenant lawsuit? Droughts were part of the covenant. Look at Leviticus 26, 18 to 20. God says to them, he had told them, if after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and I will make the sky above you like iron. You don't get much water from iron, do you? And the ground beneath you will become like bronze. It will be hard your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. Creation is broken. As part of the covenant, it is expressed here in this verse. I actually think, though, that Hosea is thinking beyond just Israel and just the covenant. He mentions here beasts of the field, birds of the sky, fish in the sea. I think Hosea is thinking about Genesis 1. This is how Moses describes creation, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Uh, the world is broken because of sin. In recent weeks, we have seen 
earthquakes in Japan and Ecuador, terrible flooding in Texas. All of these calamities are signs and testimonies from creation itself that the world is broken. We sang this morning as the service started, this is my father's world. And, and creation beautifully does testify to God's uh, existence and his power, but its brokenness speaks to our sin. Every diagnosis of cancer, every forest fire, every broken bone, every birth defect, every death, It's all a result of sin. As a result of that one sin, the sin in the Garden of Eden, death came to all of us. If that's what one sin does, what damage have you wrought? God gave his law to to the Israelites and the whole world stands in silence before him. Now, some of you, some of you are activists at heart. And you're already thinking to yourself, all right, this is the problem. There's no love. There's no faithfulness. There's no acknowledgement of God. Give me a list. I can do it. I'm going to do this. If we're in trouble, I can fix this. I can do these things. I can show, show me what faithfulness looks like, and I'll do it. And show me what love looks like, I'll do it. And show me what it means to now, And I, I, I can do it. The problem is, if that's your response, on the one hand, I appreciate that impulse. On the other hand, that impulse comes from a failure to understand how significant the problem really is. You, you can't fix this. The problem is that bad. The damage is too severe. You can't fix it. The good news of the Bible, though, is that Christ has. Now, think with me about this passage again. Remember, it starts, there's no faithfulness, there's no love. Exodus 34, 6 says that God abounds in love and faithfulness. You know what happens? If you take those words, love and faithfulness, in Exodus 34, from Hebrew into Greek and put them into English, you come to John chapter 1, where the text says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus himself abounds in love and faithfulness. There is no one, there's no one, no human being that has ever walked the earth who has been full of grace and truth except Jesus Christ. No faithfulness, no love. Oh, he is the embodiment of them both. He is full, he is full of grace and truth. Verse 3 is about broken creation. How did the world respond to Jesus? Jesus stood up in a boat one day at a storm and he said, all right, knock it off. That's what the Greek says. Knock it off. Knock it off. Silence. Jesus would walk along the shore and there were fishermen with empty nets and Jesus said, fish, get in the net. And the fish got in the net. Jesus would heal diseases. He made blind people see, deaf people hear. This is Jesus' power over creation. Creation is not broken when Jesus is in the room because he fixes it over and over and over again. And how did the world respond? How did creation respond when he hung on the cross? The world shuddered from its impact. The sky filled with darkness as if the heavens themselves were bruised and expressing the bruising that was happening to the Son of God on the cross. Remember what Isaac Watts wrote? 
Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face when his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness, and melt my eyes with tears. Creation, subject to frustration. We're going to return to Romans chapter 8. In fact, it's on your blue sheet again. I think we need to go back there one time, one more time to understand this. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Creation is subject to frustration. It's broken because of our sin. God created the world as a perfect home for us, but we broke it. And when Jesus came, it was subject to him. And when he hung on the cross, bearing the wrath we deserved, creation itself shuddered. And someday Jesus is going to return and he's going to repair what we have broken. It will be renewed. Verse 21, in hope, the text says, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation in its current state matches the mess we have made. It is as bad off as we are. But there's coming a day when Jesus finally and fully rescues all who turn to him by faith, creation will be remade and renewed so that it matches the glory that will be our own. God made us. He made everything. He made all of us and all creation. We broke it in our rebellion. Through his son, God has redeemed it. Now when that sinks in, when that sinks in deeply and it becomes part of your thinking, then you can come to the point of responding to this call to love and faithfulness and acknowledging God. Unless you know the full extent of the problem. We're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Hosea looking at the problem. Hosea unfolds the ugly nature of our rebellion against God in a hundred ways. Unless you know the full extent of the problem, you will never truly appreciate the solution. And when we turn to Christ, we find, oh, what an answer God has given. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, we don't like to hear things like this about ourselves. We don't like to hear uh, this, these uh, condemnations about our lovelessness and our dishonesty and our hostility toward you. It is not pleasant to hear them. But we thank you that you have spoken truthfully to us about ourselves. You are a good shepherd, but you're a good physician too who tells us what we are truly like. Lord, we thank you even more though this morning for the Lord Jesus who in every way embodied these virtues that were missing in Israel, that are missing in us. He is our Redeemer, and we long for the day that he will come and, and bring his redemption to full, full consummation. We thank you for your kindness to us in this word. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.